Hello, welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. I'm Jim, and I'm here with Shayra and Ben and Noah, and we're going to discuss the 1988 Dutch film Sporloos, also known as The Vanishing. Now, this is the foreign language film, not the remake with Jeff Bridges, which we're going to pretend doesn't exist. Now, if you're new to our podcast, we dissect really good horror movies and discuss them in relationship to philosophy. And if you haven't seen Sporloos or The Vanishing, we'll be spoiling it. It's directed by George Schlauser. It tells the story of a young couple, and Saskia, the young woman, disappears at a gas station. From there, the film essentially becomes a character study of these two men, the killer Raymond, uh, Raymond, I'll be anglicizing his name, and the bereaved man, Rex. Sporloos is one of those into-the-mind-of-a-serial-killer movies, much like Brian De Palma's 1992 film Raising Cain, Dressed to Kill, which De Palma made in 1980, and later, of course, A Silence of the Lambs in 1991. So this fits right in that tradition of going into the mind of disturbed individuals. And one of the things that's revealed about Raymond is that he chooses to to bury Rex and Saskia alive because Raymond himself is claustrophobic. He essentially kills others using his own worst fear. So let's start with, let's start there. Let's start at the end. If you were a sociopathic murderer, <laughs> which of your fears would you use to dispatch your victims? Uh, Noah, do you want to go first on this one? <laughs> wow. Uh, first off, what a great first question, Jim. Great kickoff. That really brings out the best in us. Love it. Love it. I, I, you know, since I am a sadistic sociopathic murderer, I will go ahead and answer this question for you. Uh, I would, I would dispatch, I think, um, a fear of nothingness, of unbecoming, because that's my fear. So maybe I would take a person and strap them to a table in a completely pitch black room. And in this room, there's water that's like only a couple feet deep, right? So you have a pitch black room filled with water and a person that's strapped to a gurney. And that gurney can either go up or down with a with push of a button, let's say. I would then lower the gurney just slightly below the surface of the water so that the person begins to drown in this already pitch black room. And just as they're beginning to drown, I would raise them back up just slightly above the surface of the water and tell them over, let's say, like a speaker intercom or something, just how close they got, how close they were to ceasing to be a person that the pitch black that they were experiencing in that room is about to become a sea of unbecoming in mere moments. This is what I would be telling them. Hey, you asked for this, Jim. Just want to point that out. You asked for this question. Uh, I would then let them in on the bad joke that, like everyone else who's ever lived and been snuffed out of existence, they're about to unbecome in mere moments from now. And I would let them reflect on that. I would then lower them back into the water and keep them there just slightly under the water as they merged with the infinite black sea of unbecoming. But uh, that's just me. What about you guys? No, wait, hold on, hold on. Let's let's pick this apart a little bit because I think we need to, to think about like the feasibility of this. So this mm. idea that you've this idea that you've sort of come up with, I think, 
is very engineering heavy. Now, when we think mm. about the main character of our movie at hand, he has some familiarity with his method of dispatching victims, obviously, like it comes with his expertise. True. Um, and so I, I think that that needs to be part of the criteria. Like if you're going to be uh, hypothesizing ways in which you might actually dispatch your victims, I think we should make it a little bit more realistic. So so I think what Noah, you would uh, you would help them communicate uh, to an uncomfortably efficient degree, I feel, or maybe you would you would teach them to uh, dispatch themselves, like, <laughs> thinking about like, Oh, uh, no, I would just, I would just basically trap them in, like, a float tank. Have you guys ever been in one of those, like, float tank things? I bought a Groupon a few years ago to do, like, one of those saltwater float tanks where, like, you lie backwards in a float tank and you just, the door's closed, you're in utter darkness, and you just float there, all right? It's supposed to relax you. One of the most horrifying things I've ever experienced as a human being was lying in a float tank on my back with the door closed. Had a problem getting the door open. That didn't help. So I thought I was locked in there. Couldn't find the fucking door at first. Almost had to hit a panic button. So I'm sitting there floating on my back. And then I didn't float like I was supposed to. My fat ass kept going under the water. So I'm in the situation where I can't see anything from me. You can put your hand this close and you can't see your hand. You're supposed to float and sort of just merge with darkness. And in my mind, I'm going, this is not helpful. This is my biggest fear as a human being. Why did I buy this Groupon? This is the worst Groupon I've ever purchased. And so I'm thinking, you know, in my scenario, I just go back to that same place where that float tank was. And I just throw someone in there, just add a gurney and some straps. Doesn't need to be an announcement over an intercom. I just crack the door open. Yo, bitch, you're about to become unbecoming. Close the door. Simple. Make do with what you can. Modern problems require modern solutions, Ben. Is what there, is there a Groupon for that? <laughs> yeah, not that part. The additional part was probably twice the price. I don't. I didn't sign up for that level, but yeah. What about you, Ben? Instead of like workshopping Noah's, what? How are you going to be your uh, kill others with your own worst fear? No, no. See, I'm a normal person. I haven't really thought this through. I don't think I would ever actually <laughs> kill a person. <laughs> That's the person that scares me. The person who says I'm a normal person, I haven't thought this through, has the best answer. He just doesn't want to say it. That's my experience. <laughs> so what do you say, man? I think uh, I, I, I don't like hope, uh, helplessness. I don't like feeling helpless. I'm a very independent individual, right? Um, I like feeling efficacious. I don't like relying on others too much to be able to do the things that I need to do in life. And so I feel like if that were taken away from me, that would be pretty terrifying, right? If I were just completely left without the ability to help myself. And so whenever I think about something like that, if we're going like really hardcore with it, I might actually just do what you see in either in Red Dragon or Hannibal, right? It's like where you essentially have the pigs and they're going to let the pigs or whatever, like eat the person's feet or something like that. So it'd be something like that, right? So slowly you're kind of like painfully losing your ability maybe to walk or you lose your hands so you can't get yourself free. Eventually you're just kind of like laying there completely helpless, maybe paralyzed, something like that. I don't know. Like I really haven't thought about it too much, but in that film in particular, I think that's a really interesting example of how to make somebody feel incredibly helpless. Um, that doesn't require a bunch of expensive engineering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to uh, avoid any sort of work workmanship in your uh, in your murder plan. Sure. I have never seen Ben become much more of a utilit a, a utilitous person than this conversation. <laughs> I get it, though. I get it. All right, mine is uh, multifaceted, but it it puts in all of the things that are my fears. Um, someone would be dressed as a clown 
or I guess I would dress as a clown. <laughs> oh, that's horrifying. I wouldn't even be able to look at my own reflection. Um, I would dress as a clown and I would um, cause someone to become paralyzed, but completely aware of everything around them and strip off little pieces of their skin, a la, you know, the demon from uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, what he did to Willow. Uh, stripping off little individual pieces of the skin and eating it right in front of them and then putting needles into them and doing the kitty 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 and then you know eventually somehow finding some kind of a pill or something to put in the person that would cause them to have forever dementia that would probably be the worst thing that could happen to me so if Jesus. i was going my worst fears that would be it yeah so, so a, a involuntary frontal lobotomy Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can you can get that done too. Yeah, and I mean, if I wanted to go full on like with realistic stuff, because of documentaries I've seen, is uh, when they would stick the ice pick in your like corner of your eye to do it. Right. Swirly, swirly bits. Yeah, uh, that would probably be absolutely horrific to me. So, yeah. Um, loss loss of control seems to be your thing. This is one one of the reasons why when I um. When we first talked about Sporloose, this is why I recommended it to you, Shayra. I was like, of all the people in the podcast, I thought to myself, this will scare Shayra, I think, the most, just like it scared me, you know. So what is it about this film that scares you, Noah? Let's let's sort of, you know, try and transition this into, like, what makes this a horror movie? I mean, it has limited violence, it has limited gore, but why is this scary? Why is this a horror film? Yeah, so I think this is a pure, pure psychological horror film. Psychological horror films are, are really all about what is not shown, right? Uh, and of course, what's not shown in Sporloose is one thing. <laughs> it's what's happened to Saskia, right? This is a film that utilizes dread in that regard. It utilizes tension. But I think infinitely more than those things, it masters the art of drawing out curiosity from the viewer, Right. So many a psychological horror film draws on some part of the viewer's curiosity, curiosity to know who the villain is or why they're doing what they're doing or if the protagonist is going to survive, yada, yada, yada. Right. Sometimes it's not just about gore and violence. Sometimes it's um, it's about what's in the box, so to speak. So uh, so I think Sporloose draws entirely on the desire to know what happened to Saskia. I mean, you're look. In this movie, you're given who the killer is like a third of the way through the movie. You know his motivations uh, for abducting Saskia. You know his reasons for abducting Saskia. You know how he abducted Saskia. You know where it happened. You know how it happened. And you know to whom it happened. And even the effects of it happening. The only thing you don't know is what ultimately became, what ultimately happened to Saskia. And in that sense, I think what this movie does so well is that it makes you share the same psychological torment to a certain degree as Rex. Like this is one of the more brilliant aspects of this movie is that it puts you in the place of a kind of shared empathy with Rex. Like by the end of this movie, Rex's torment kind of becomes yours. I mean, I I remember as this movie was progressing on and on the first time I watched it, I was hanging on my seat wanting to know, like, what the fuck happened to Saskia? Like, just tell me. I, I remember hitting a point in the movie just going, just tell me what happened to this chick. Like, what is, like, ah, like, I, like, I want to know what happened to her. And so to the extent that I think psychological horror places a particular focus on mental 
and emotional and psychological states that aim to frighten or disturb or unsettle the audience. In that sense, this film, I think, captures that to a T, right? So it strikes me as a very obvious, but also a purely psychological horror film in that sense. And I think it works structurally. It sort of goes from a like a a, a who done it to a why done it to a how done it, and then eventually a what is it? Um, and it's 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 well structured in the sense that it's able to sort of uh, seamlessly transition from each of these. Uh, elements of of mystery you know if we take a look at most mysteries they usually do one or two things they're either a who done it or a why done it or a how done it um but this manages to be all three and you know seamlessly move between those so you know in that sense it's it's well done but you know i think that when we're taking a look at this as a horror film um there's there's a real the the there's a character in here who serves as kind of the answer to the audience and could be just as much the audience surrogate as Rex is and that's Lienke I I'm not going to pronounce her name correctly but it's Rex's uh second girlfriend in in the film and she's just basically saying look if you accept the fact that she's dead and clearly he does, uh, then what's the beef, dude? Like, let's, you accept that she's dead, then let her go and come lay on the beach with me and do nothing. Um, and yep. so I wonder, does that sort of, how does that get into your, how does that relate to, to your uh, positioning yourself in relationship to this film. Like, did you, I mean, clearly you seem to identify with Rex's motivation, but did Rex's second girlfriend, uh, Lienke, I, I'm not going to pronounce her name correctly. Did, did her, did her appearance in the movie serve at all to alter your, your self-identification with one of the characters? No, um, I th I don't think let, that Leonenke is uh, a a analog for the viewer. I think that I, I think that Rex's relationship with her is a representation of what like would be life. What life would be like were he able to move on? Like she's kind, she's empathetic, she's understanding. She's door number two for Rex. Right. She's not necessarily the viewer. The viewer's Rex. You share everything in common with Rex, not Lianike. Right. But Lianike is essentially in a way out for, for Rex. It's his door number two. Right. So I would characterize their relationship as something like the potentiality of moving on without answers, of, of, of being OK without knowing. Right. Like Leanna K is sort of our option to turn this movie off as viewers. Like we know that at a certain point in this movie, we know it's going to end poorly. Right. We, we, we don't need to know what happened. I'm good. Right. Like that sort of thing. That's what that's what Leanna K is. But we all know when we watch this movie that we're going to pick door number one and door number one is Saskia and Rex picks door number one. Right. So. 
Lianke is is really, I think, the film's way of giving us an early indicator of how far Rex is willing to go in order to get the truth. If he's willing to end a seemingly good relationship with an obviously gorgeous woman um, in his obsession with Saskia's disappearance, then what else is he willing to do? Right. Like I wrote in my notes, Saskia is kind of like a Klondike bar. Like, what would you do for a Saskia? Well, according to him, you drink some spiked coffee, hang out in the rain with your abductor and then get buried alive. Right. So I I think that's so Klondike bar, man. it, It totally is. Yeah. I but I, so I, I think that her role in this film is a representation of what things are without this obsession with, with it's door number two, all things considered. I don't think that she ought to be viewed as uh, just another observer as opposed to an option for the observer. Although I will say that she is definitely less sexualized than Saskia is. Sure, she sure. Is in her costuming, in the way she's shot, in the way she's lit, she is far less sexualized than than Saskia. And in that sense, it's it's the director uh, trying to sort of tip the hand to what we're supposed to be obsessed with and what we're supposed to be interested in. But let's uh, give the other uh, Ben. You look like you want to say something. Let's talk about yeah. the uh, genre and this and what what makes this a horror film for well, you. Uh, uh, just to back up just a little bit. I'll, okay, sure. We, we can launch into that yeah just a couple points on this though because this is actually a really interesting train of conversation that we've struck on already um first i just want to say that i i would change the language a little bit jim i think i'm 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 digging a lot of what you're saying so far i think i would change the language a little bit instead of saying that saskia was sexualized to say that she was romanticized i didn't really see any sort of and i'm thinking about this just to make like you know just to make sure that i don't have any evidence of it but i i don't think i ever ever saw her really being like really like sexualized i mean it's clear in the beginning of the movie that she and rex were in love i think um but it it was more of like um it it was more innocent than that and i think that's really kind of like what they were trying to portray was this sort of this image of you know we're in the garden this is the garden of eden everything's innocent and then suddenly everything just drastically changes and that's sort of like what we what we see is the beginning of rex's obsession so that's just like one minor sort of thing i would change there just the tone um but i i think it's it's kind of interesting because i actually believe that this movie does have two main characters and because it spends so much time trying to get us to empathize with raymond and i think that's exactly how he was able to sort of bait rex at the end right um, you know, of course he has Saskia to hang over his head and that's kind of like the initial thing, you know, he's been chasing this girl for three years, trying to figure out what happened to her, where she went, even though in the back of his head, he knows, as we know, she's probably dead. And that again, like we've talked about already is sort of the conclusion she's died. If you can accept that, if you can move on, then you can live a better life. You can let go and you're no longer susceptible to that that baiting and that hunter hunted relationship but once he finally does uh, rex ended up, ends up meeting raymond the entire what 30 minutes after that I, I think it's another like half an hour of the movie or maybe even 40 minutes of the movie is spent on them just sort of traveling there's even a scene at one point where they're out hanging out in like this jungle gym and they have a laugh like they actually have a brief chuckle together when they talk about how that last that guy's last name is poof which i believe in french is actually a way to call somebody effeminate or gay i think that's i think that's what the joke that they were making there was but yeah i mean they have this moment where they actually seem to kind of connect and that's what's i think the most interesting part like that's really sort of like this 
this important pivotal point in the movie to me because you actually see sort of like the the dichotomous relationship between these two characters and because of that i really do think that raymond is also kind of like a second main character and a second perspective much in the way that you would see like in all those movies that you talked about in the beginning or, or even more recently like in in the house that jack built like the right. point is that you're supposed to be freaked out or at least me i was freaked out by the fact that this character is so relatable and it seems like a few it's a matter of degrees between a normal a, a normal person and somebody who just wants to go the step further if if that makes sense well yeah um so uh, let's and and that's actually i mean that's i think we're going to spend some time on both of these main characters although in interviews uh the the director um Schlauser, George Schlauser, talks about how he considers Raymond to be the main character and Rex to be, like, a secondary main character. Um, so the idea of Rex being an audience surrogate, as as Noah hit upon, I think is is right on, and that the main the main uh, the main event, so to speak, would be Rex or, or or Raymond. You know, this is the reason the audience is paying his five bucks to uh, get inside this 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 guy's head, and that Rex is sort of the surrogate for that. I, I the way I've sort of structured this a little bit later is is let's spend some time talking all about Raymond and then spend some time talking all about Rex so that we can kind of suss out who each of these men are, because I think this is a character study as much as it's a horror film. But Shaver, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to what about this film makes, what about this film is scary, what about this film is a horror film? Uh, let's let's have you weigh in on that, and then we'll just proceed to talking all about Raymond and then all about Rex. The, the scariest part for me is that the killer is a really nice guy, a family man with kids. He's actually a good person. In fact, he saved somebody's life. And it's because of his conversation with his daughter, where she called him a hero, that he decided to even go on this quest to see if he really is a good person or not. And it was actually uh, Rex, who's kind of a dick. I mean, he abandons her in this tunnel and the killer guys actually kind of interesting and nice and and has a, a nice family and and they have a good time together they eat outside classy eating i mean that is probably the most horrific part is that the killers and this is this does happen in real life the killers very much can be personable charming normal people in everyday life i mean we've heard about serial killers who their partner doesn't even know that they've been killing all these people they have no fucking clue um, and then they find out and they don't even believe it because how could that possibly be? That is the most horrific part is that this is super realistic. Um, the idea that a family man could just be living his life and then deciding to go on some quest to murder people in, in what he thought was the most horrendous way possible. Um, just out of, eh, am I a good guy? I don't know. Let's, let's do some testing of myself and see how far I'm willing to go. Holy shit, that's fucked up. But I also think it's fucked up that the asshole could be the person who obsesses over trying to get some control over a situation. And honestly, it kind of makes sense. They look like they're on that quits in some ways. Yes, they still love each other, but there seems to be some conflict there. She was even the one that first talked to the serial killer guy. Um, so it seems like maybe she was not so interested in that relationship anymore. Maybe he wasn't either. They were, you know, they're fighting and stuff. Mm -hmm. 
I, like, I don't know. It could have been on the outs. It could be something that you could repair. But, you know, when you have these, like, troubled issues that you're going through, he abandoned her in a tunnel. That was kind of fucked. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like, having gonna... that control taken away, like, but he let's... can't even decide to cut the relationship off or let it continue. She's just missing, and he doesn't know what happens. So... I mean, I think that, I think you're right that there's, that, that that moment where like, Rex leaves her is, is important to understanding his character and important as sort of understanding the whole, the whole thing. But, um, questioning, I think that, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that she was talking to Raymond in the gas station with the hopes of any form of infidelity with Raymond. I don't think she was doing that, but you know, it like, why would you say that? It seems very strange to just all of a sudden to talk to a stranger, like just some random guy. Like that's really weird to me. Um, I, I wouldn't do that at an ATM thing. That's a strange thing to do to talk to a, random stranger in that way maybe it's because i've been paranoid uh you know my whole fucking life i lived in northern california where the golden state killer was a thing and so we were told to put sticks in our windows and never talk to yeah, anybody that's, that's exactly <laughs> that's it i was just gonna say that's exactly why there's a difference here i mean to you you're I, and i get it there's a sense of monday morning quarterbacking seeing all the i mean this is 1988 eight True. so th- so there's i mean you know there's 30 years of, of, of <laughs> yeah there's there's 30 years of evolution in there where now we're just like well, you looked at me the wrong way i'm gonna fucking call the cops you know so yeah i i well, I, I completely I understand. This. in 1988 we were told about this stuff uh, my family was very yeah. paranoid my dad was teaching me all different kinds of ways to fight against anybody who might come into the, our house um we had guns that were readily available we were learning how to use them at young ages um like it, my family was pretty paranoid about that stuff, but he was literally right next to us. Like the Golden State Killer was found in Citrus Heights, which was like 15 minutes from our house. So there was a lot of break-ins happening and a lot of rapes happening and a lot of murders happening. So honestly, like when I talked to some of my friends where we grew up, we were told at a very young age to be afraid of this stuff. Maybe it's not the case in like uh, where were they? I don't know. I don't even know where that gas France. station was located. Was that uh, yeah, they were in France in the 80s. Yeah. So yeah, they may it, not have had as scary of a situation. But for me, like that just it seems like dangerous thing to do. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's it's probably also looking back at all these different killers that we know about now and, and knowing that that's probably the worst possible thing to do. And honestly, I wish guys would know this too. Like, like when girls are like shutting you down when you talk to them in public, they're not like trying to be assholes. They're afraid you might kill them. Like seriously, like just know that's what girls are thinking. It's no offense to you. It's it's something we know has popped up in stories, and we don't want to be a statistic. So yeah, I mean, look, if any incels are watching this, just lead with "I'm not a serial killer," and then say what you want to say, and I'm sure that will go well for you. So the uh, first thing I say when I meet a new person. Um, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about Raymond. Um, so as Shara alluded to, uh, he basically says that his decision to 
kill um, is is sort of a logical one in his own mind. He saves a drowning girl. He uh, he says that he jumps. In, well, his daughter says that he jumps in without a second thought. He, there was a second thought, um, and he saves the drowning girl. He thinks of himself as a hero. His daughter says that he's a hero, but then as he says. I thought that her admiration wasn't worth anything unless I could prove myself absolutely incapable of doing anything evil. Does this let's let's do what the movie wants us to do and what the movie is trying to do. Let's get in the in the head of a serial killer. Does this make sense? Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me I'll, I'll start by saying on the surface, uh, on the surface, this just seems very simplistic and childlike that idea. Right. But I thought her admiration wasn't worth anything unless I could prove to myself, unless I could prove myself absolutely incapable of doing anything evil. That's what makes me a hero to him. Right. And it's like it's like it's almost like a child's idea of Superman. The idea that like being a true hero means that you're incapable of just doing anything bad. It's sort of like the take your vitamins and drink your milk naivete that, you know, a child has about their hero. But Raymond conceives this sort of attitude as an adult, which is really strange, right? Obviously, as an adult, one sees the broad complexities of being a person, being a hero in one moment, obviously doesn't mean you're incapable of doing doing evil in the next. Like every everybody's capable of doing evil things and being an adult, you would think that he knows that. So the only thing I can think of for him to have this attitude is that this attitude is a function of Raymond's narcissism. It's a part of his sociopathy, right? In other words, it's 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 simply a justification for Raymond to experiment with cruelty and wickedness. It's it's sort of a way of justifying to himself and partaking in this heinous action that he's going to do with Saskia through a kind of curiosity, through the vehicle of curiosity. So the idea is like this. Um, oh, only heroes are capable incapable of evil actions. Well, then am I a hero? Well, let's see. Am I incapable of or, or capable of a really evil action? Let's find out. Right. So it's like it's like this really simplistic way of justifying to oneself the evil that you're about to inflict. Does that make sense? It's like it's like an outworking of a kind of narcissism. That that's the way I saw that. However, you know, above that, beyond that, the most important thing to keep in mind here is that Raymond initiates this kind of experiment as a kind of curiosity, right? Am I capable of doing a great evil if I'm not a hero? Hmm, let's let's find out, right? And this really underscores the idea that curiosity, no matter what character you look at, curiosity is the centerpiece of this movie. And, and I'll go into this in some of the additional questions and stuff and the, some of the stuff we're going to talk about. But I think that curiosity is really, this goes back to curiosity being the centerpiece of this movie for Raymond, for Rex, and for us as viewers. All right. So from my side, too, I mean, whenever I think about Raymond, there's something else that really comes to mind here. Like, obviously, he's going to be a very scientifically minded individual. And of course, like what Noah was talking about, we see this sort of experimentation, right? Um, that all makes perfect sense to me. What's What's kind of curious, though, is... You know, his his explanation of how he imagined what he said was the worst possible thing and then just sort of started taking small steps toward that, take one step and then another and then another. And he even mentions, of course, that the worst possible thing he can imagine isn't dying. 
And so that's kind of interesting. So I think what we assume is that what he imagined at that point, because that's that's really what, like, what did he imagine? Like, he never explicitly says what it was. I don't think it was what he did to saw. Like, I don't think it was burying people alive, which is his method of killing, of course. Obviously, we're allowed to do spoilers here. So I don't think that was it. I think at the very end, like, his whole thing with Raymond, that was probably the worst possible thing. He took someone away from somebody, created this enemy for himself, created this obsession. This guy couldn't let it go for three years. He approaches the guy convinces him willingly to get in his car knowing what's going to happen convinces him to take the poison himself and basically tells him about what's you know I'll, I'll you know i'll tell you exactly what happened to sasuke if you do this if you do this if you do this and he keeps setting the bar one step forward for him and luring him to his own demise and so that i think was probably really his grand plan the entire time like, for most of this movie, when you see him planning out, like, all these individual steps, hear me out now, like, he, he's planning this out, he's timing it, he's thinking about the timings from, you know, the house to this other point, like, he has three or four minute window, right, like, all this stuff, he's getting this down pat, but really what he wants to do is he wants to try and take that and push it one step further, so once you set all these boundaries for yourself, in terms of the parameters of how you might kill a person, what's the logical next step? Of course, it's going to be to try and push yourself beyond those parameters. And so he goes to another country, even a totally other country, takes away all these different things. Like he doesn't have to chloroform the guy. He doesn't have to you know, worry about the mileage and like the timing and all this stuff. He stretches his experience so far out that it gets to the point where he's baiting this guy three years down the road and getting him to like willingly allow himself to be killed. Like what else what else could Rex have possibly imagined was going to happen once he got in that car, really, like, what did well, he think was going to happen? And so whenever I think, go, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I'll talk about that in a second. I mean, I, I do want to talk about Rex's, Rex's internal motivations in a moment. But yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, right going right. with that. And then I, I do want to respond, though. Okay. But yeah, so like whenever we think about like his, his explanation, right? So Raymond's explanation, his logic of why he did what he did, I really do think that makes a lot of sense because like, of course, you know, when he's a kid, he gets on that ledge, he pushes himself to the ledge and wants to see if he would be willing to throw himself off because he knows that most people would not do that. And he says, can I do this? And his entire life, of course, we there's a big jump, right? He says it's 26 years from that point until he jumps off that bridge but that kind of sets off, again, that pattern in his mind of having that behavior where he just wants to chase this greater and greater experience. And so that, I think, is understandable because a lot of people have that, where they have this experience and they can't let it go and they want to push it farther and farther. It's classic addictive behavior, I think. So you get this like this feeling. Maybe he is a little bit sociopathic, which means maybe he doesn't necessarily feel emotions the same way. Maybe he doesn't feel emotions or excitement or adrenaline quite as often because he has sort of this lack of ability to feel disgust or like fear, whatever it is, right? There's something there's something there that he lacks. And so if he finds this experience that allows him to feel something kind of intense, it gets his heart racing. I think that's really what he's chasing ultimately. And because his mind is the way it is, that's what leads him to do this crazy sort of violent thing. But if you really boil it down to like the um, the chasing of an experience, I think we can really start to wrap our minds around why exactly it is that he continued to to do that. Um, does that make sense at all, or am I completely? It does. It does. No, no, it does. It does. Yeah, I, I have a counter to that, but I'm going to hold mm. off on it and let Jim go. But I yeah. want you to hold that thought because I, I have a really good counter to it, Ben. But uh, yeah, okay. I, it makes sense. It makes sense. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe we could sort of tag team on this because I think I, I want to push back in two in two ways. First, I want to say that um, I think you're right that he's I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about he's chasing the experience. He's chasing uh, defying predestination, defying mm-hmm. uh, the modes of thought that he was previously inculcated to believe. I think that all of that is right on. But I think you're ascribing to him a little bit too much, uh, a little too much intelligence, because I don't think that he could have guessed that Rex, that based upon him picking up Saskia, that Rex would behave the way Rex behaved after the disappearance of Saskia. Because remember, he Saskia is his second uh, attempt at a victim. Well, he's yep. Saskia is like his twentieth attempt at a victim, but yep. the second at that at that particular gas station. So I don't <laughs> think that he was sort of playing twenty steps ahead, three dimensional chess to figure out. <laughs> To know that based upon the way Rex and Saskia pull up in the car, that Rex would be the person that Rex is. But when he is presented uh, with uh, Rex as Rex is on the uh, on the on the talk show, where Rex sort of says, "I just want to know what's going on." Um, mm-hmm. At that point, I think you're right that he is chasing that addictive behavior. He is chasing that extra that extra that 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 adrenaline rush of doing what he did to Rex. Uh, doing what he did to Saskia, to Rex. I think you're right there. But I also don't want to uh, um, apply too much suaveness to this guy. I think he is a perfect... Uh, a, a perfect representation of the banality of evil because he's fumbling he's 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 awkward he's just sort of standing there like you know excusez-moi mademoiselle could you help me with my thing and he's he looks like you dude you look creepy as fucking shit man you really do nobody's gonna go into your fucking voiture with you all right it's just not gonna happen for you and because he doesn't he's he's not he's not suave he's not debonair he's not he's the he is adolf eichmann he is the banality of evil and i think that that is I, I so I think that one of the things that these serial killer movies have done since Spore Loose is is uh, and, and I think House the Jack we talked about this associated with House the Jack Bell is it it in some ways glorifies the serial killer a little bit more than I am than I am comfortable with and one of the things I liked about Spore Loose is that they made this guy look like a schlub and I like that he's a kind of schlubby uh noah you're shaking your head what do you uh why do you disagree i uh, no, I, I i wanted less schlub i wanted more bodies built into a fort i mean that was <laughs> what i thought when i was gonna get into no i have thoughts but i'm gonna wait until we hit some more of the other stuff with rex i'll, I'll defer to shara for this i'll let let her hop in yeah, uh, so one of the things that I found most interesting, yes, he is a schlub, but, but I think he's more of that dad energy, you know, like the, the guy with the, like, the strappy sandals but still wearing socks and, like, barbecuing and shit. Like, he has that kind of energy. Um, awkward dad. <laughs> awkward dad that the teenage girl would be embarrassed around. Um, and maybe, in a way, that's why he could seem... Uh, like someone you could fall for some of his shit for. Um, of course, he 
adds an element to it by having uh oh i have a broken arm you know i how could i possibly abduct you and hurt you if i have a broken arm as um, i was telling buffalo bill just the other day <laughs> <laughs> right like it's it's a really smart move though because it would cause you well, first off you know we have this tendency to try to want to help others and we feel bad if we don't help others and he's like oh can you help me and obviously he's in a situation where he can't get help I, I mean honestly if if you have hindsight you'd probably be like why don't you have a guy help you with this it's stronger that's in the area like what the fuck he's literally letting dudes go by and just yeah. going oh let me talk to you rather attractive woman and yeah. you will help me hook up my trailer tonight. but but it's a product of the time man in the 80s no one thought you know a guy with a thing on his arm is gonna fucking hack and slash someone in france at that time like like that's 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 monday morning quarterbacking to me i think it makes it still feels kind of weird like if there's a bunch of men like just just with the idea of the you know views on women and they're weak and can't do stuff it seems kind of strange i would probably be like what the why he's a feminist really i mean that's think what I'm i think yeah. like, <laughs> hey. Hey, so he's well, a feminist the, you know that's what it is. here's the thing though i mean i think we we kind of have the explanation of that too throughout the movie it's like i'm pretty sure everyone was just assuming that he was trying to to get laid like that's that's kind of when he met that person who was like uh, yep. his daughter's coach like she's like look if you go to this gas station over here where all these foreign women are nobody's going to recognize you she didn't expect him to go over there killing people she was expecting him to go try to have an affair that's (laughs) true the volleyball coach yeah she kind of clued him in on where to go oh my god everyone everyone impinges (laughs) (laughs) yeah right everyone everyone impinges the most um sincere motives to him which i think reflects a kind of product of the age Uh, i i think that we are all you know, my favorite murder-esque horror movie fucking junkies. And and I think that that sort of sullies the way we look at this at the time. Well, the second victim is Rex. And there's, you know, the practical reason uh, that uh, Raymond kills Rex, and that is that Rex knows his name and can turn him in. But Raymond knew this would happen when he went to meet Rex. So why exactly does he kill Rex? Is his murder of Rex like a form of charity to kind of put Rex out of his misery? Or what What do you think is... He wanted to have a road trip Hunter. movie and hang out, just like, <laughs> game stories. So what, uh, Noah, you seem to be talking uh, about... That's it. That's it. You hit the nail on the head. You hit the nail on the head with that. And this is my, maybe my somewhat counter to Ben. So so Ben, let me know what you think of this. So, so I'm convinced that... Raymond kills Rex and is is doing this towards the end of the movie um, for no other reason than to put Rex out of his misery. Like his experiment uh, that finds finality in abducting Saskia, it's been realized and Rex is simply like an act of empathy in Raymond's mind, right? So think of the scenes where, um, where Raymond is watching Rex on television as Rex is begging the person who took Saskia to tell him what happened to her. I mean, notice there's a lot of interesting language. It's not like turn yourself in, yada, it's what happened to her, right? And we see this in the scenes where Raymond is watching, uh, I think even Rex at the cafe, right? So what I think happened is that Raymond saw a very obsessive 
desire in Rex to know what happened to Saskia. I think he saw that this obsessive desire was so strong that it even overshadowed revenge, which gave him the ability to approach him directly, maybe think he was going to take a few shots, but know that revenge was less than the desire to know what happened. So I think Rex isn't out for revenge. He's just compelled to know. And I think Raymond knows this. And so in seeing how tight that grip of curiosity was on Rex, how deep it bore into him, perhaps it's possible that in Raymond's mind, Rex would only be satisfied if he saw with his own eyes if he experienced and went through exactly what Saskia went through, like perhaps nothing else would have been enough for Rex, right? Um, it could be the case that Raymond thought Rex would not be satisfied with like, let's say a mere retelling of what happened to Saskia. Like he could have just approached him and said, here's what I did, right? But he didn't right. do that. And it could be the case that he knew from seeing what he saw of Rex that Rex would not be satisfied, wouldn't believe it. Um, after all, there's nothing tangible there, right? He could just be lying in Rex's mind about what happened to her. But, but there is an honesty in offering the experience of what Saskia went through. That's something tangible. And when you're in the perspective of someone like Rex, you want the tangible, you want the truth with a capital T. So I, I don't think Raymond was motivated in killing Rex by like utility, right? That he was going to get caught. In fact, Raymond has a counter for pretty much every threat that Rex has it has for turning him in, right? Like every time Rex says, I'm going to do this, well, he has a counter. I'm going to do this. Well, I have a counter, right? Well, all of his counters are, yeah, but you'll never find out. Well, that's the other thing, right? So th that's right. Like th that, that again underscores the idea that the curiosity is going to win at the end of the day. That's true. That's absolutely true. Um, so he's, but the point is he's not like Raymond is not scared of Rex turning him in. So, so then, so then the question is why kill him? Right. And I think it's because Rex would not accept anything other than being that second golden egg. Like, in fact, Rex actually describes the dream of him being the second golden egg on that same television program where he's pleading to Saskia's abductor. And Raymond saw that. Right. So Raymond heard Rex's dream about the second golden egg and just kind of gave him the opportunity to fully realize that dream to be the second golden egg. So, so I see it as I, I, I see it as a, a kind of putting out it, putting him out of his misery, giving him what he only will accept. That's why I think Raymond killed Rex. Yeah, I mean, you're you're ascribing a lot of empathy to a serial killer, man. Like, uh, I I really see this as being like that's that's kind of like the one thing that I feel like is is going to be a big flaw. This is because you're not looking at it from the perspective of Raymond being somebody who is hunting prey. And I really think that that is going to be more the mode of translation for me for like any serial killer is going to be this person is hunting another person. And the evidence that I have for that is specifically the way that he reacted to saving that little girl. It wasn't, oh shit, there's this little girl, I have to save her. He described that situation as being another opportunity to push himself one step further. And if it wasn't for that, like I, I might be more on board with what you're saying. But the fact that at no point in this movie does he show any empathy for another person person really um, but he did he jumped that, he, he jumped in to save her he jumped not, in to that's save not her. what he was looking for though he wasn't looking for an opportunity to save somebody he was looking for a very self-serving narcissistic 
experience. Like he wasn't, he didn't care about the little girl. It doesn't seem like he cared about giving himself an answer and an experience. And so if you think he looked at Raymond or he looked at Rex as anything other than an opportunity to push himself further and get like one step farther to, you know, just to push things a little bit more to have a more intense experience. I think that's a little bit contrary to his pattern as a killer right like there's there's really no evidence to me in this movie to suggest that he's going to hear rex's story and be like man you know yeah that's yeah that sucks i really want to help this guy get closure it's more like oh shit you know maybe this is prophetic maybe he's talking about this dream maybe it means something i'm really interested now i wonder if i can bait this guy into the same situation that i used to kill his his lover or whatever you know like so I mean, I, I get what you're saying, and that's a really interesting, that is really interesting. Like, I like that interpretation. I just think that there's less evidence for that than for him just trying to hunt prey in a more interesting way. So, okay, so maybe we can meet in the middle ground and think of it like this. Do you remember when there's a scene when Raymond is driving his car, and I think he drives right past two women that he could just really easily abduct and bury and kill and do, and he just drives right past them, right? So to me, that, to me, what that says is it counters the idea that he's purely out for prey, that there's something more oh, no. there. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not just not just anybody will do, because if anybody would do, then why would mm. he go through the trouble of planning out all these steps and writing down all these notes and scientifically measuring his heartbeat and the time it takes to get to the gas station, how long chloroform lasts on him. Uh, like there's uh -huh. all this experimentation. Like there's a very methodical way that he wants to do this. And that's when you think about like a serial killer having a particular method of operations, right? Like there's this thing and it's usually something about fantasy fulfillment. Like it's never just, well, I just want to kill a random person. It's never really about just killing a person. There's something more to it. Um, so, so do you, so do it, you, it's, it's so do you, it's obvious to me that he wouldn't just go for the easy prey. So, okay, mind. okay. So to you, he took. Okay, so to you, empathy is a tool to get what he wanted. Maybe oh, we could yeah. say that. Oh yeah. So yeah. That's exactly yeah so how psychopaths uh, operate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not the idea that he had empathy for Rex and decided to put him out of his misery. To you, it's it's he saw empathy as a tool to give him a more enhanced like a secondary victim to create the second golden egg. Like he saw it as a tool in order to get Rex into the, uh, into bait. the box. It's bait. It's bait. That's bait. That's bait. Interesting. Every time he said, yes, you could do that, but then you won't know what happened. He's mm. dangling that carrot right in front of his face because mm. he knows it's going to work. Mm. Yeah, that's that's very that's very possible. That feels that feels like that makes sense. That not that he has the empathy, but that he's utilizing the empathy as a means for sociopathy. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's probably so more. Two scenes that I'd like to ask you guys about. Then, based off of what you guys have been saying, there's one scene where he's walking with a coworker or a friend or whatever, and they they see these signs going up, and he's kind of like the fuck this guy's still looking for this bitch you know and he's kind of like you know talking about how he's annoyed about this stuff he's like what girl and he's like you know the girl we always argue about we argue about everything you know <laughs> and they're having this like back and forth there's that conversation where it seems like he's kind of like ah oh, this guy's still fucking tripping on this bitch but there's also scenes where he's like hanging out with his family and they're having dinner outside and they decide to just start screaming and the neighbors are screaming and there's a screaming back and forth. What are what do you guys think these scenes 
say about him as a person because it seems like he has friends it seems like he has a sense of humor it also seems like he's a really fucked up person but well, well did you did you see what he did in that situation in the screaming thing his yeah. daughter screamed and then he used it as an opportunity to see if his neighbors could hear people screaming from that property like he's like uh, do, it again, good point. do it again now everyone scream as loud as they fucking can like and then he asked his neighbor hey did you uh did you hear anything man you know, like that was, I, th I feel like that was, it was, he was just using that as a way to get more information that would help him do his thing. Like that's right. Because yeah, like that's I, I do, that's I do like see that. I do see that as a, a form of gathering, but honestly, I hear people screaming, especially kids in my neighborhood all the motherfucking time, all day long. And I'm like, if one of these motherfuckers is getting murdered, none of us are ever going to know because these kids scream when they're playing. So I guess these kids want to get murdered because I've like they cry wolf way too they much. Don't I don't want to get murdered. I <laughs> know they don't want to get murdered, but like honestly, I'm not going to react to a like random ah, like. Kid yeah, scream. I mean, it's literally like it, it's set up in the movie that he he likely put the spiders in the drawer so that he could get the scream. And so then he could test whether or not the the also it's uh, probably he gets off, his rocks off on it. Oh, what <laughs> what kind of Alex Jones bullshit conspiracy <laughs> theory is this that he put the spiders in there, Jim? Well, if you believe if you believe he's a that he sociopath, Noah, like wait what? a minute, wait a minute. If if you believe he put the spiders in that damn drawer, but you don't believe Pele orchestrated everything in Midsommar, we got some we got some talking to have. Hello. We got some fucking talking talking to have we don't even just have to saying. go that far like jim literally made the argument against me a few minutes ago that he didn't take this long game approach he wasn't playing 3d chess he was just opportunistic about the fact that he had another thing to like to action on right so i really again like maybe he just saw this opportunity like there's a difference between i will put spiders maybe my daughter will scream and i can test whether or not people can hear the scream and then based upon a couple driving up saying hmm if i kidnap and murder her he will be obsessed about it and then three years later i can fuck with you <laughs> clearly, clearly you don't very different plan like clearly you're not a statistician like, though, because okay, like, if you're, if you're playing the numbers if you're playing the numbers he could be like well like one out of ten people are going to get like real obsessed with this if i take away their you know whatever and then eventually this person is going to come along and i just gotta wait you know maybe Again, like Alex Jones level, you know, perhaps, perhaps, but we gotta we gotta pick one lane or the other, man. Either he's a mastermind or he's an opportunist. Yeah, like, and no, and Jim, the Alex Jones thing was uh, is a compliment. I mean, I'm proud that we've devolved into the depths of these conspiracy theories with the spiders in that drawer. I it makes me happy to hear Those you say two that. Vastly different plans. I uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, that it's self-explanatory the degree to which those are two very different. Uh, they're playing out two very different things. I think he made the decision to involve himself with Rex when he saw Rex on the television. He did not make the decision to involve himself with Rex when uh, the car pulls up and he sees Rex and Saskia. Uh, whether or not he made the decision to put the spiders in the drawer or not, I'm willing to sort of play with that and and let that let that go uh i think it's possible he put the the spiders in the drawer to elicit a scream to test whether or not people can hear the screams it's a rather practical plan uh but uh knowing <laughs> we that... all we all practice it wherever we live and, and you know whenever we move into a new place 
practice I mean, you're listening to the screams <laughs> of the neighborhood children like uh, <laughs> what i know shara it's put spiders end. all over the neighborhood and just <laughs> children <laughs> scream <laughs> everywhere yeah she doesn't even have to use the spider hey, we have spiders all over our neighborhood anyway this is like spider land but especially this time of year but like the thing is 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 you know spiders are pretty like common and they're, they're usually outside it could have just been there but it also could have been a plan of his it's But here's one thing where things get weird. Like I said, he was hanging out with his friend, annoyed about the posters. Was he just trying to, like, gauge public opinion of this? Or was he actually just starting to get annoyed that this guy wasn't letting up? Like, which one was it? Who was he playing? Well, what was it that he said? I think he actually, like, his comment about it wasn't, I feel bad for this guy. It wasn't, I'm no, pissed that this is like, happening. No, it was like, why is this guy obsessed? Like, what is his problem? Well, let's see, I think I think he said that he actually respected his tenacity. Like, his yeah, friend did. didn't give a shit. Like, that, that I think, was actually interesting because it was, he like, a very, like... his tenacity, yeah. Yeah, like, it was a weird response to have that, right? Like, that's a very curious response to have. He's, like, he's, so, he's impressed that this guy has spent years or, like... Try, trying to find this person that he loved that was murdered, like, of course. Of course that's going to affect you. Of course you're going to be thinking about that in three years. I know right. people who were who had, like, significant others who died of, like, illnesses, natural causes, whatever, and they don't stop thinking about that, right? Like, it's yeah. I think it's a common reaction to have when someone is taken away from you that you never, like, completely get over it. So the fact that he was like, man, like, I can't believe he's still doing this. Like, I really respect that. That's a little bizarre. It's, you know, it's not like an empathetic response. It's not like an irritated response. No, it's I like, think it's he just very, is, uh, it's like middle of the road flat. It hammers home uh, Raymond's sociopathy because he can't understand why somebody would be obsessed over someone that they someone they lost. Uh, so it hammers home that he's unable to sort of conceive of what we would consider to be a normal emotional reaction, and that is to mourn the loss of somebody even three years later. Um, but let's get into Rex. Let's actually talk about him. Let's kind of transition away from Raymond and and, and get into him, uh, get into Rex rather. And that's, you know, he talks about like one of the things that I, I so I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to my review section. One of the points that I'm going to make in my review section is that I think that this movie is fascinated with Re- with Raymond and I'm fascinated with Rex. So all of the mm, times interesting. That we're inside Raymond's psych, uh, psychology and all the times that we are inside Raymond's point of view, I'm like, no, 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 get out of the way. I want to talk to Rex for a while. Like, I find him to be the most fascinating character in the entire film. And I think, you know, in my review section, one of my flaws, for one of the flaws that I don't like about this movie is I think it's it, it's putting its attention in completely the least interesting of the two characters. So let's talk about what I think is more interesting character and that is this horror of obsession of needing to know an answer to an unanswerable question which is at the heart of Rex's character. In fact, it, the moment that I find most compelling is when he's running around the trees uh, he, you know, right before he drinks the coffee, he's just running in these fucking circles. And that has been his life for the last three years, running in these circles, 
trying to find out, and then he runs toward the coffee, drinks the coffee in a single gulp, and that is a physical metaphor of his life after Saskia's disappearance. And for me, he is the most interesting character because he's we're spending a lot of time. He spends he spends so much time being sucked into this thing, and I think that's much more relatable. I'm much more interested in the horror of the obsession. I'm much more interested in in this idea of never being able to find an answer to a a, a question that that fucking haunts you, and and I think that that makes him the far more compelling character of the two but but i've, I've talked much enough about him uh for now <laughs> what did you guys think of him how do you we talked about him as an audience surrogate but i want to yeah. talk about him uh not just as an audience surrogate but as a a fully fleshed out character himself well let me let me just start with this F- follow me here i i completely agree with you i think that rex is a more interesting character ultimately than raymond that said again my schema here is that rex has a lot of similarities with us as viewers you know we want to know what happened to saskia just like rex it's almost it, at a certain point when you watch this movie it's almost impossible to turn it off without knowing what happened to her. Like if I had something, if my if my wife had said, hey, we forgot this thing, we gotta go pick up some groceries in the middle, I would say, I, I, I don't care. Like I have to watch this. I, I have to, I have to know what happened here, right? Like, and not being able to turn this movie off is analogous to Rex not being able to have a stable relationship with his girlfriend and not being able to move on with his life. So, so I don't, I, I know that you, you, you want to talk specifically about the interesting parts of Rex, but I think this ultimately wins out the day, Jim, because to the degree that we're Rex, follow me here, to the degree that we're Rex, I see his demise as a kind of punishment for the viewer's curiosity of what happens at the end of this movie. And that's a very unique for me. When you watch this movie, you get the sense that you and I, that the viewers were fish on a line, that we're being pulled in this way and in that by the movie, and that everything, like everything hangs on our curiosity to know what happened to Saskia. Maybe that's a fault to you if you watch this movie. Maybe it's so strong that it becomes a fault. But to me, that's the centerpiece of this movie. This film is saying at certain points, are you are you sure you want to know what happened to Saskia? You you can you can go back if you want. You can turn this off. I mean, is this what you really want? And Rex is getting that same. Are you sure you want to go for? Are you sure you want to drink the coffee? You want to think about like what do you want to do, right? Okay. And yeah. But by doing that, by making that relationship between Rex and the audience, you are i think you're you're downplaying one of the more interesting parts of the character and that is what is it about rex that makes him so obsessed what is it about rex that makes him uh unable to have the relationship with li- li- uh, the lady the second girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> his girlfriend his yeah yeah uh, <laughs> You say it much better than I do know of, but anyway, like, what is it? What is the what is the central aspect about him that makes it? Because I, you know, if we keep talking about them as as sort of audience surrogates, <laughs> if we keep talking about Rex as an audience surrogate, then if you're telling me 
that my life, Jim's life, is going to hang in the balance whether or not I turn off this movie halfway through. I'm going to go ahead and turn off the movie halfway through and maybe <laughs> up Wikipedia or some shit. But you didn't. But you didn't, right? I think this hangs on our on 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 the significance of us as curious agents, right? When 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 you get so follow me here. When you get what you want at the very end of this movie, when you find out what happens, it's so profoundly terrible that at least for me, I couldn't help but somewhat feel indicted as a viewer, like I, and, and not like a moralizing, preaching kind of indictment, but like a kind of self-reflective. Well, I kind of fucking got what I asked for, sort of indictment. That's how I feel in this movie. This is this. It might actually be the only film that I've ever watched where I actually felt bad for wanting to know what happened once everything was said and done. Like I felt terrible at the end of this movie. I I felt the emotional equivalent of Rex being placed in that box. Like to know as a viewer, this was my catharsis. Like that this was my tension, the release of tension in this film, burying two innocent human beings alive. That made me feel awful. And I don't ever feel awful when I watch horror movies. Like we watch movies, people of movies, people being hacked in half, tortured, launched into deep space. We love this shit at the Deadly Analysis podcast. We've seen like all manner of depravity in all of the films that we've covered on this horror podcast. But this movie, this movie is the first time where I genuinely felt bad to get a cathartic release from the tension that's offered to me in this film. And I would contrast this really quickly with, fuck, I don't know, other psychological horror films that overtly aim to do this. Maybe a movie like Funny Games, for example. You know, movies that kind of feel forced. They feel like I'm being preached at or lectured. And Sporeloose didn't feel like this at all. And so I, I, you, you may want to focus on Rex as Rex, but I want to focus on Rex as us because the guilt that I felt at the end of this movie was kind of the point in a lot of ways, I think, of the direction of the film. It felt organic. Like, I can remember the precise moment where like it all came together and I was like well shit I feel terrible why did I do this I should have just turned it off and got groceries with L like and and to me that is an incredibly rare and a valuable experience to me as a moviegoer and it's one of the reasons that this movie is so close to my heart and I think that to feel that way it relies on us focusing on Rex as a, a uh, as a placeholder for you and I. So I don't want to I don't want to devalue that too much, but I want to let you go ahead and give your piece. Sure. Well, let me let let's explore. Let's explore what you're talking about for a little while longer, and then we'll try and talk a, a little bit more about Rex as as a character. So what is the alternative? Uh, if the movie is trying to if the movie is trying to teach you a lesson, not in a didactic way, but rather in a demonstrative way, if it's what is the source of that guilt that you felt? What would be like guilt is always uh, is a form of regret. So what is the what is the what is the source of what is the alternative? What is the the path not taken for you? Is it literally turning off the movie? Because that's not. I, I that I think it's it's. Well, why not? What's wrong with that? I have every why? option to do it. I can go with my second girlfriend. I can choose door number two. I can right, go. But you're. Let's focus on 
you as a Rex as an audience surrogate, what yeah. is the I mean, there's a moment where Rex can just go, look, I got your name. I can just go to the cops, have them like you know, essentially to question you and interrogate you to the point where you give nothing up. Nothing will happen, but sure. No, nothing will happen. I mean, it's entirely possible that he could have uh, he could have taken that choice. What is the equivalent of that for you as an audience member then? Does that make sense? Does my question make sense to you? Sure, sure. I, I think the I think that there are a lot of potentialities you have as a as a moviegoer. There are certain movies where you can go. I think this may be the point of the movie is that there are certain movies where you can go very early on. This is going to be bad. This is going to end poorly, and I'm about to be a viewer, and I'm about to watch something really horrific. Now I got a choice. I can I can just go, you know, I've seen enough of these movies. I know where this leads. I'm turning this off. Uh, I'm going to watch to the end. Uh, you know, the, you, you have options as a moviegoer, right? And I think that's that's essentially what his second girlfriend represents. That's her potentiality. So uh, there are a lot of things you can do other than make it all the way to the end and suck it up and see what happens and to choose to end with your curiosity being the thing that takes you where this director wants to take you. So there's a bunch of things you could do, Jim, but I think ultimately the director knows that everyone's going to want to make it to the end of this movie. Everyone's going to watch it. Nobody's going to turn it off. And knowing that, I think the director gives you something you kind of don't want at the end where you feel like, oh, this I knew it. I fucking knew it. Why? God damn it. I should have known better. I'm going to stop watching horror movies. I need to set up my New Year's resolution to stop being this kind of person. Like there's there's a whole bunch of things going on here. And I think that's that's the sort of indictment I felt. It was like it made you reflect on the morals and ethics you have as a moviegoer. The only time that's ever happened to me is in Sportless. There's no other film I've ever watched that's made me feel this way. I hope I hope that answered your question. Maybe it it does. Let's see. Uh, let's see what other people have to say, and then I'm gonna and then I'm definitely gonna talk about Rex as a character, not just as an audience. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, he's a he's a character, but like character. the val the value characters have are in our relation to how we describe them and and how they function, like. A, a character existing without our analysis of them in relation to maybe the world that we live in or who we are seems superfluous. I mean, right, like, but I, I, and I think that's what you're doing. I think you're. I think by identifying him as an audience surrogate, you've turned him into Keanu Reeves. You've turned him into ooh, the character. The character that is so blank that anybody can just put themselves on him. This is this is sort of rather old film analysis, is that Neo is every man, and so he can <laughs> be so blank that he can be so, whoa, that we can just put ourselves onto that character and follow him on it. Well, I, I, think it's, I think it's one element of us as viewers. It's not the banality of all viewers. It's this one element we all share, which is our curiosity. We're very different people. Uh, sure. obviously um but but we all share this same element that i think in some contexts is a flaw it's like that looky loo i know it's gross to look but i'm gonna fucking look sort of thing um mm -hmm. so it's indicting the audience's curiosity in your point the, their morbid curiosity correct can i can i and throw in on this with the macabre go ahead Shayra. yes so, correct uh, i think you're both right um uh, but here here's here's how I want to explain it. So 
yeah, usually a protagonist might be a little bland, you know. Um, we, we've seen this in Twilight, except she's way worse than anybody. But, you know, we see like a bland kind of protagonist. It's so that we can see ourselves in it. But the thing that they're trying to talk to us about is how much we try to seek out the truth, how much we try to seek out knowledge. We saw this in all of the X-Files, but also I, I think human beings are just naturally curious. We are always trying to seek out information on things. How yep. far are you willing to go to know things though? And, and that's the thing. We all have a tendency to go pretty far when we want to know things. Um, but as Lizzo says, the truth hurts and it's not fun to know all the truth. <laughs> Sometimes when you know truth, it does give you wisdom, but there's some pain with it. Right. And I think that there's something beautiful about explaining that, that knowing truths, isn't always like this great thing. It's sometimes a horrible thing. You're learning something bad about society or something bad about mankind or or how you might not be able to trust certain situations anymore. So it, it is messed up. And I did think of Funny Games when I watched this. Um, funny Games, I liked, but I think I like Spore Loose far more. Um, but, uh, you know, the thing is, is we, we do need to think about why it is we want to see what the end has for us That's and it's really it's just human I, I think you're exactly right i think yeah i mean there we we should understand i think the truth in a lot of situations as being a burden right i mean like even when you think about the bible right the, the light bearer there's a reason that the light must be born because it is a burden it is a weight yes um but i think there's there's something else here too and i think that it, it digs a little bit um into a different maybe potentially direction of why Rex might be interesting as a character and generally like heroes might be interesting as a character. Like I, I really don't think Rex would be interesting at all if it wasn't for Raymond. And like the fact that, you know, I, I think as humans, of course, like, yes, we want to seek out truth, blah, blah, blah. But like in, in movie after movie, like we see that protagonists really have nothing on their own. They're not interesting characters on their own they, because they don't have motivation. And like, unless you have kind of like that kind of like opposing force there, uh, as we have here in Raymond, there, there's really nothing to drive them toward that, right? I mean, is that not the case, Jim? Like in in storytelling, obviously you're the you're the you're the uh, king no, no, no. of, uh, I, of literature not... here. Uh, so I am shaking my head because I think that there is one counterfactual to what you're talking about, and that is the scene in the tunnel. He, heroes do not walk away from screaming women in the tunnel. Um, it what. What I'm trying to get at with Rex is I think that what makes him interesting is his flaws, which makes him the more interesting character is the fact that when we get introduced to him 10 minutes in, he is a monster asshole. And it is that moment that creates the sense of guilt and a sense of um, responsibility that he abandoned her once and then at, even though his second abandonment at the gas station didn't directly lead to her uh, disappearance the, he abandoned her once and even though his second abandonment didn't directly lead to her disappearance it is still the residual guilt from that first abandonment that leads him to be so obsessed and so uh, and so fixated upon her and upon her her dis uh, uh, upon what happened to her and that's why I find him to be more interesting it's because he has flaws because he is not a traditional hero because he is not a 
traditional part he he can't go under door number two he can't uh he can't um start a new life with his with his other uh girlfriend because he hasn't been able to resolve the things that poison the first relationship uh. his mind led to her death but so alternate, he might, he, might not be the, he might not be the hero we deserve, Jim. But he's the hero that we need right now. Understand because he can take this. <laughs> and I, look, I mean, he's he's a tra- traditional heroes. Jim have flaws. Pick any superhero; they have a flaw. I, I just don't buy that. I, I, let me let me give you the counter to what you said, Jim. I I don't think that it's that he left her in the in the tunnel. That is the that is the brunt of why he's after the, her abductor, right? So the, let's talk about the tunnel scene and Rex. So initially, I thought that Saskia was actually going to be taken from the car, like while in the tunnel when he leaves. I think the movie kind of makes you think that may happen, but I think having her be taken shortly afterwards in a public place was a much better decision so recall that him leaving the car results in a fight between saskia and rex right they fight but then they make up from it and in the process of making up they say a lot of beautiful things to each other a lot of loving things to each other things that sort of become their last words to one another right the last words rex is ever going to have with saskia that makes her disappearance that much more gut wrenching to him. It's not that he fucked up at the beginning. It's that he fucked up, acknowledged his fucked upness, corrected it and had good words with her. Right. So without leaving her in the car, there's no fight. Without the fight, there's no affectionate and hopeful last words to one another. And without those last words, those last moments of happiness that so abruptly get taken away that turn Rex into a moth destined to go into the flame. Like it's those, it's, it's, it, 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 that wasn't the final step. The final step was the things they say and their interaction upon fixing that problem. So I think the scene where he leaves the car says less about Rex and more about, I think, how the director's pulling back that fucking slingshot onto the viewer right before it gets released. That's my perspective. By the way, can we can we talk a little, just I, not even talk about it. Like, I just want to mention the fact that the foreshadowing they do there at the end of that makeup is beautiful, where they both bury the coin. They Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Fantastic. Well, well written. Yeah. A nice little metaphor there. I would say that just because I think you know human relationships well enough to know that even after you make up for a fight, Uh, from a fight doesn't necessarily mean that the issues that led to that fight have been wholly forgotten. That's totally true, but I think what that scene leaves you with is not that vibe at all, Jim. If you want, go back and watch that scene. Ask how that scene... Ask how that scene ends. It doesn't end with, well, I've remembered what you did and I'm still not cool. It ends with, we're going to have a good time. We're right. good. We're and beautiful Yeah, be- beautiful things, good things, and loving things. And that's how they end. Their finality between them is that sentence. And so, well, I mean, that sort of, it's not that sentence, it's that vibe, essentially. And so, I, I think it's more complex than just, you know, they ended on a bad note. They actually ended on a good note. 
they end it. What I'm trying to talk about is not necessarily about where their relationship is and whether or not they would actually have fought more if they got to Marseille uh-huh. or wherever they were going. What I what I'm trying to talk about is what makes Rex a more complex character than simply an audience surrogate, than simply a Keanu Reeves, you know, char- blank character where we imprint ourselves upon him. I think that you're doing. <laughs> I think you're doing Rex a disservice by by sort of talking about him only as an audience surrogate. I'm talking about him as a fully fleshed out three-dimensional human being. But he's not has, in the movie. He doesn't have, we don't know have, anything. No, he's not Jim. We don't know what his profession, I mean, there's nothing fleshed out in terms of his profession, in terms of his dynamics with his friends. We don't see him ever go out to eat or drink with people he loves. We don't see enter, any interaction with him and his family. We know very little about him at the end of this. He's oh, not so meant to be. Oh no! I mean, maybe we we don't have a. Fu- I mean, sort <laughs> of like we don't have a fully fleshed out picture of who he is and all of the dynamic and differing areas of his life, and it's on purpose. It's because he's a placeholder for you and I. He's not meant to be that sort of that sort of deep character that everyone knows to that degree. That's the point. I mean, how much do you know about Rex in this movie? Not much. Can I uh, say something? The beauty of the fact that Rex and Raymond are the main characters is that they're both gray. They are gray as fuck. There is no black and white. And that is really hard for, especially in 1988, for people to watch. Bad guys are bad. Good guys are good. This good guy does all the good things. This bad guy does all the bad things. That's the story. But this story was really well gray area with these two main characters. And I think it's supposed to make us uncomfortable with the idea that we could see ourselves in Rex's shoes and we could see ourselves in Raymond's shoes. What the fuck? It should be obvious. It should be black and white, but it's not. And that just, this is a character driven film. All of these characters are very important. Even, even the girl goes missing, even though she's in only 11 minutes of the film, she's very impactful. Um, Yes. This is character driven, well-written, well thought out characters. Um, but I, I, I do understand what you're saying when you say that Rex is supposed to be like, we're supposed to understand where he's coming from, but we're supposed to do the same thing with Raymond. Um, it's, they are weirdly relatable characters, and that's uncomfortable when you can relate to the killer and to the victim all at the same time. And I think there's a lot of movies that have done it since then, but it, it was kind of rare for that time period to be that relatable with both of those characters. I think it's really well written and and I'm glad it it popped up and people paid attention to it. Um, I know you guys hate um, uh, Stanley Kubrick, but um, Stanley Kubrick. No, no, uh, no, 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 no. I hate Stanley Kubrick. I think everyone else likes Stanley Kubrick. I will. I will. I I will. And I will be down there with Stanley Kubrick for creating the films he's made. (laughs) And he will make a far more interesting film than you will ever dream of. Nope. I'm just going to be Rex down there talking to him like, what's my job? What do I do? Where's Saskia? That's all I'm going to say to him down there. They explain this, this argument even. But like Stanley Kubrick watched this film and, and talked to the guy who made it. And he was just like, this is the best movie made ever. And so the the creator of Sporloose was like, uh, I actually disagree. There's this Seriously. film called The Shining that's really good. And, and Kubrick's like, ah, no, that didn't. It's, it's nothing. <laughs> and, and they they both kind of had this idea of The Shining is this thing that is, you know, 
coming at you and the vanishing is this thing that's coming at you it's this idea that there's these things that we can't control right it's a control issue this is the this is the fear we can't control some shit oh no but yeah kubrick apparently really liked this film sorry <laughs> the only thing i will agree with the only thing i'll agree with conversation ben and then we'll move on to uh to a quick discussion of some of the filmmaking elements and then fi final thoughts. So go ahead and close oh, out wow. this part. Wow, yeah, I, we've, I want to talk about this this movie a lot. It's it's so good, guys. Uh, I, I want to say, though, that if Kubrick actually did downplay his own creation of The Shining, I feel like that's the one case in which he was probably right. Like, that's probably the most insightful thing. That... Agreed. 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 100% <laughs> agreed. Doctor also... sleep next week, folks. No, man, look, it's, that, oh, that's, that's, Mike, that's Mike Flanagan. That's much better than Kubrick. Jesus. Doctor Sleep is the bomb, I gotta say. A little bit of a preview there, but also like when we're talking about the rarity of this kind of movie at its time, I also like I'm not sure again, like I always want to try to call out the first, and I'm always wrong about this, and Jimmy always correct me, so correct me here. Is this the first movie to have a scene where we have a perspective inside of a coffin with a light? Because like whenever I watched this, the first thing I saw it was was Kill Bill. Like, and I know that's not the other movie. The only other movie to do this, like we have entire movies where we're shot within this confines of a coffin like obviously there are music videos now where people borrow from that same idea it's a really compelling shot but that's the earliest example of it that i've seen and i think that's really special let's ask our viewers is there any film before 1988 that shows a first person perspective shot within a coffin that way before 88 because I, I don't know either yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of I know it's a concept that has, uh, you know, always been in horror. I mean, this is where we got the ideas of, of vampires or the walking dead is, is the, That's you know, people dying yeah. and being buried alive. There's bells that you had to, like, pull a string. Like, I know this is modern, like, take maybe on an old school realistic fear that people had. But, yeah, oh, yes. being buried alive is is being seen on film i don't know but i know that that's an old school story absolutely yeah my story question i would concept. be thinking of like a nosferatu or a, a early vampire film for a a first person coffin scene sure. so. but then all the draculas have the the coffin in a you know kind of basement like uh or a kind of building where they're not buried alive like, yeah they open up there's an accessibility to those coffins like what's right. the first film of it being buried alive where you can't get well, out I, I specifically i mean from the cinematography though i i literally right. just mean like the way it's being shot like that particular oh, okay. shot is an amazing way to shoot a scene like i i really love that way of doing it and like there's a handful of like movies i think where they actually do that where you're laying in the coffin it's dark they strike a light that's the only light you have. The camera is right there on the character with him. You get that claustrophobia. You feel it. You see it. I I don't know. Like it's it's a really great shot, guys. Um, and so that specifically from a cinematography perspective is is really kind of like what I'm looking for. My there. favorite version of that uh, shot is in the show Misfits. Um, it's a British show, and Robert Sheehan plays a character who is buried alive with his iPod and that's the light illuminating in there. So uh, yeah, if you guys want to check out the misfits, I highly recommend it, but that was a horrifying scene. The idea that your iPod, which will die soon is all you have left for light and hanging out in a coffin. 
Well, I mean, maybe it, it's buried, which is an entire movie of that shot. But... That's right. That's right. It's the whole movie, right? And that was a, that was a really well done movie too. All I'm saying is, if you're buried alive and you gotta you strike a match and you watch it die, it's sort of if you're looking at it and there's blackness around you, it sort of sort of looks like a golden egg. Kind of weird. So one of the one of the other structural things I want to talk about with this film is that we get the introduction to Raymond in a flashback, uh, which lo- allows the audience to emotionally identify with him before we really figure out that he's the he's the killer. Uh, I mean, we get a few shots in the actual gas station vanishing scene, but it's hard to really figure out like who he is in relationship to the uh, the story in that by by flashing back the way it did um, but uh, I already talked about the genre and how this sort of claims all three elements of mystery who done it why done it and how done it uh, which is which is structurally really cool one of the things that was really interesting about this film to me is it's got a very Alfred Hitchcock kind of mystery feel to it and um, one of the things that Alfred Hitchcock talked about is uh, the suspense that you build is is from like showing that there's a bomb under the table, like letting the audience know that there's a bomb under the table and then just having this conversation going on between two people and the whole entire tension and suspense, suspense that you have is waiting for that bomb to go off. And the great thing about this film is, you know, she's dead. But the whole film is just waiting for this, you know, realization of how and and it is a bomb it is and that's why it's so suspenseful it it really does hold that suspense it's it's so hitchcockian in that way like i love i love that you're like i know the bomb's gonna go off i know it's gonna go off where's the bomb eventually you're just like ah and then it's a curiosity part that's the curiosity part that hooks you you know yeah so I think it's such a great uh, example of suspense. And if anybody wants to like learn about how to build suspense, I think I will recommend this film just for that alone because it is so good at it and so excellent at it. So speaking of recommends, let's proceed to our final thoughts. Um, so I'll go first. And um, first of all, I, I, I like this film. I like this film fine. I think I will give it a three and a half out of five. Um, but what's pulling me back are two things. First, as I've already mentioned, I think that Rex is far more interesting character. And I think he's the far more relatable character because I want to get into the psychology of a person who becomes so obsessed with an unanswerable question and then once the question is essentially answered is Saskia alive or dead she is dead that's the answer then you're still obsessed with other elements of that uh, of that answer and i think that's fascinating and i want to get more involved with that character and i think this film is uh part of what where when it was produced and 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 sort of the obsession with the psychology of sociopathy that was sort of gripping the popular culture in the late 80s early 90s uh the that 
for those reasons, the film focused on Raymond much more than it focused on what I consider to be the more interesting character. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's a fault of the film if I'm reading it in context of its time. It is a fault of the film for me as a viewer as I'm watching the film today. So I am giving it a recommend. I am giving it a relatively high score. It just doesn't reach that upper atmosphere because it's not doing the type of things it's not doing the type of things that I would particularly personally um, uh, uh, idiosyncratically find find interesting and find um, you know find a, 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 an attraction to um, I also want to touch on another element and that is the portrayal of sociopathy and uh, I already talked about Her Hannah Arendt's idea of the banality of evil and as that's being related to Raymond. What I'm far more interested in rather than getting in the mind of a killer is getting in the mind of the successful psychopaths. Um, I'm thinking specifically of uh, John Ronson's book, The Psychopath Test. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it because it explores, it doesn't actually conclude, but rather it explores the concept of, of our society rewarding sociopathy and psychopathy. That our society is sort of set up to uh, to to incentivize psychopathic behavior. And I find that to be a far more interesting let's get in the head of a psychopath than, uh, than what's portrayed in Sporlose. Because let's get in the head of a psychopath here is specifically about the narcissism and the obsession associated and, and, and in orbit around this particular violent act, the killing of Saskia, and the eventual killing of Rex. What I find more interesting is what would a movie about uh, psychopaths and sociopathy and psychopathy where the action, the violent action isn't the murder of a young woman, but rather like the strip mining of a, 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 a environment of a mountain or the, um, the the disenfranchisement or bankruptcy of an entire town. That's the type of psychopathy that really affects human beings today. And that's the type of psychopathy, uh, that's the type of drama of psychopathy that I would be more interested in making a movie about. And I think that as we've sort of progressed as a society and as we progressed in our sort of portrayal of psychopathy, sociopathy, and mental health issues, that we've gotten some of those movies in much more interesting ways than 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 what Sporterloose has to offer. Uh, to offer, I'm thinking specifically of of uh, Christian Bale in American Psycho, where the metaphor is very specific about how psychopathy is being rewarded in the 80s industrial and and monetary uh, uh, environment in which uh, Patrick Bateman finds him in. So that's uh, that's sort of why there was a sort of disconnect between me as an audience member and this film. That there's there's sort of a 
what I wanted out of the movie wasn't necessarily what I was getting, and I was a little bit disappointed with that. Nonetheless, I'm still recommending it. I'm still giving it a relatively high score. I still rec- I, I still understand that it is a well-made, well-constructed, well-shot, well-acted uh, uh, film, and so and so for that reason, uh, I, I certainly give it a recommend. So let's go, go ahead and go to Ben. What do you think about Spore Loose? Well, I mean, I think, uh, again, like we've all talked about the fact that this is really just like a heavy character study movie, which I mean, I think it's that means it's not necessarily going to be for everyone, but it's definitely going to be for me. Like, I I really enjoy the way that this is written. Um, And I think it's particularly interesting and special, not just because it focuses on one kind of like main person. Like, obviously, you have kind of like the protagonist antagonist distinction and dynamic. But as Shara talked about before, it's a little bit more gray. And I really don't think either character would have been nearly as interesting had it not been for the other. So really, I think what's cool about this movie is that it highlights the dynamic between two different types of obsession that sort of collide with each other, right? Um, maybe not. Maybe you don't see this this way. But I really do think that, like, if, if again, like as I tried to allude to earlier, um, if we think about, uh, like, Rex by himself, you know, if, if Raymond had never intervened in his life, obviously we wouldn't have a story. But if it wasn't for Rex's obsession... Raymond wouldn't have been nearly as an interesting of character because he wouldn't have had, I think, this opportunity, obviously, on screen time to both explore sort of his internal workings, but he wouldn't have had his masterpiece, which I still think was not Saskia's murder, but the fact that he was able to bait this obsessed person willingly into his own demise because of his own obsession. Um, I think there's there's something about that that's really, really unique. Um, and I definitely respect what you're saying, Jim, about social commentary and movies like this, right? Like, I mean, there's definitely a lot to be said there, and I really do agree with that. But even though we have kind of like a psychopath narcissist character in this movie, which is kind of like the common explanation of why a person would kill another person, like clearly they must be broken in some way. Um, I think what really the focus is is not just that or the other. It's it's kind of like their their interaction. And so, like, that interaction effect between two really pretty interesting characters is what makes this movie special. Not not just that, of course, but because it is so incredibly well-written that they can manage to put both decently developed characters in the same kind of, like, storyline in, like, an hour and 45-minute movie or, or whatever it is, right? Like, a, however long the movie is. Um, I think that that, though, also kind of, like, goes to, like, the one sort of point or so that I would kind of like knock off of this is because it's really hard to get a really complex story like this is really um, into um, like a movie format and an ingestible way in a way that's entertaining um, because usually you end up just losing your ability to develop those characters and earn your payoff at the end but the payoff was definitely earned at the end of this movie I think as we were talking about obviously with Noah and his his explanation of how like it by the end you're like kind of like regretting the fact that you've really sort of gone to the end of this journey and seen what it really meant right you got your answer and you sort of like had this feeling that's not it's a little bit icky right and they they definitely earn that um, but I think the one sort of trade-off that they probably made was the development of rex's character right so if i were going to give this a score i really wanted to give like man like i i wanted to go up to like four maybe a 4.5 maybe a 4.5 on this um but yeah i mean like the only thing that i would really knock off of this is the fact that they the director did try to cram this huge complex story into a short amount of explaining time and story time except that it was so well written that it works 
um, there's so much good about this movie. I think that it outweighs that quite a bit. And so I, obviously this is going to be a recommend for me. Um, again, like we were talking about before, I don't know how many firsts really are categorized in this movie, but it's definitely an early prototype of a lot of really cool um, themes that we see in horror, a lot of really cool cinematography that we see in horror. Um, just overall, like it's, it's a movie that you definitely should see. And I think obviously that's why it shows up in the Criterion Collection, just because it is kind of like those, one of those movies that you really need to see to understand cinema as a whole. Um, so again, yeah, because of that, I think my official score, I'll go ahead and say it's a 4.5, um, and then go ahead and pass it off to, uh, Shara. So this movie, uh, is seriously one of my favorite horror films. So this is going to be, you know, like my favorite horror movie, come and see. Um, it's just, it's fantastic to me. Um, so I won't, I won't say too much, but I will say this, this movie almost disappeared from anybody's radar. It, it was made, uh, it was made with very little money and it went away. And then there was um, a film festival that one of the movies dropped off. And then all of a sudden there was a, a placeholder for it. And the guy called the filmmaker and was like, hey, uh, don't, didn't you make a movie? We need, we need a, another movie in, in this festival. It ended up winning and um, then started gaining recognition across the thing. It, it wasn't meant to be found. It was, this was a movie that was meant to die and never be found. And now I think it has inspired so many amazing fucking films. So um, for that, it's even more interesting to me <laughs> because it, it could have been lost to us all and it, and it was found. So it's exciting to me to be able to find these movies that maybe they're low budget, sure, but they were able to make characters and make situations that are so fucking interesting that it doesn't matter that it's low budget. It doesn't matter that it looks like, you know, made for TV 80s, you know, like TV show. It's it's so fantastically done that you just, you have to love it. Um, this is definite five for me. This is one of my favorites. Obviously, I put this on my list too. So this is this was my film, but this is one of those standards for me because I love serial kill killer movies. I love them so fucking much, and this is like one of my standards for serial killer movies. Yeah, I give this movie a minus three. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, Sporeloose is uh, Sporeloose is fantastic. This is a, a definitive movie for me. Sporeloose, I'm going to give a five out of five. Um, it is, if for any other reason that it's one of the films that made me feel something outside of the movie, it made me feel kind of guilty and icky. Let's go, keep going that word tonight, that, that icky feeling, um, of, of, of being like, it took me all the way to here. This is my comeuppance. This is what I get. This is my catharsis. Um, just didn't feel right. I felt so wrong at the end of this movie. And I'm a person that doesn't feel wrong at the end of horror films. And it's not even like a stone in the shoe sort of feeling that I would maybe get in a film like It Follows, something that makes me scared and think long and hard about some fundamental component of myself as a person. This made me do that same thing in the moral realm. And that's really hard for me to do. I mean, I think my ethics would be somewhat cashed out as like a moral nihilist. I think that that is probably the most accurate way to describe me and yet here i am feeling the normative weight of a film of a piece of art that makes me feel the normative pressure of guilt for being an observer for something that is only 20 seconds of shot 
in a film and it makes me feel really bad for being a part of a movie like this and i got to give credence and credit to a film a piece of art that can do something like that to me made a moral nihilist start to wonder about uh, moral objectivity that's kind of strange i mean maybe it's just the weakness of my convictions or maybe it's just the strength of the movie um but i i gotta give it a five out of five for that i mean i i didn't go over the film aspects of this movie but this really quickly this is a very slow paced film the music is very quiet most of the there's not a lot of music in this movie very quiet not much music very soft warm grainy looks country backdrop contrasted with sort of vicious action on the on the part of raymond um really weird contrast going on in this movie but i think the central part is the obsession of the main characters rex and raymond they're both obsessed raymond is obsessed to complete his kidnapping plan despite the fact that he loses things in his life as a result for example the trust of his wife let's say in the process and and rex in finding saskia despite losing a a woman a girlfriend a companion in the process these are opposite sides of the same coin and i saw this movie more as a movie about rex than i did about raymond maybe that's the just the fundamental disagreement in this is that i see rex as something to be latched onto in this he's the fish on the hook and i'm rex and i'm right there with him and so i took that schema and ran with it and felt very bad by the end of this movie um and and i hope we cover funny games at some point because i would just shit all over that movie and use this as a way to show how to do it right how to make someone organically feel bad for wanting to know what happened to a character in a film. Um, I, I love this movie just for the fact that it took me out of the film and made me moralize a little bit about myself. Uh, I can't think of many films that do that. Maybe The Gray with Liam Neeson. I, I think I was going through a very religious change in my life when I watched The Gray. So there's a little bit of credit I have to just give to that as opposed to the film. But in this movie, I'm not going through anything. I'm pretty deep in my convictions. But this movie made me question them and made me think of myself as a viewer. And feeling dirty at the end of this movie just left a bigger stone in my shoe than many films that I love, like It Follows or Hereditary. So uh, five out of five for me. I, I, I just, this, this movie's a ruiner. It, it indicts you as a viewer and it's something to me that just, I can't get past. Um, I think I've given a couple five out of fives. Invitation is one. This is another one. Um, five out of five for Sporloose. Not the Sandra Bullock one. God damn it. The Vanishing is the uh, Sandra yes. Bullock and yes. uh, uh, Kiefer Sutherland movie. That film um, that shall we not be named. Yes. yes. I, well, we just fucking named it. Well, there there you have it. We've got uh, two five out of fives, a 4.5 out of five, and a 3.5 out of five for Spore Loose. Join us next time. We'll be releasing our next video on September 13th, and that will be the sequel to the Stanley Kubrick classic the shining dr sleep uh so we'll see you all then be sure to do all of the youtube things thank you for making it to the end of the video uh and we'll see you on september 13th